Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast brought to you by Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, Dave Sebastian, from Bloomberg Law's International Trade Desk. We talk about tariffs when we talk about trade policy. The U.S. has imposed a range of tariffs on agricultural and manufacturing products from countries like Mexico, Canada, the EU, and also China. But President Donald Trump met with European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker on July 25th, and the two leaders said the EU and the U.S. will work toward a zero-tariff solution, especially in eliminating the steel and aluminum tariffs that had already been imposed on European goods. Here with me today is Celeste Drake, a trade and globalization specialist at AFL-CIO. Thanks for joining me, Celeste. Thanks for having me, Dave. Good to be here. And over the phone is Bill Hoagland, the Senior Vice President at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Bill worked for the Senate Budget Committee for more than 20 years. He's also worked for the Department of Agriculture. Thanks for being here, Bill. Good to be with you, Dave. So, Bill, I'd just like to start with you. With these recent developments, are we in a trade war right now? Yes, I think we are. I think even with the president uh, meeting yesterday with the EU president that uh, I, not a lot came out of it from my perspective. Uh, the goal of uh, zero tariffs is a good goal. I think that's a good uh, start, a lot to do. Uh, but uh, remember that the issue of the uh, tariffs on uh, in, uh, on automobiles with the Europeans, which is the major issue, I think, is still not uh, resolved here. And uh, I'm not always clear. Uh, Celeste may have better understanding of this than I, but my, I'm not clear that the president of the EU really has uh, can uh, force the kinds of uh, uh, movement toward uh, zero tariffs as quickly as President Trump thinks. Uh, overall, it's a good signal as it relates to EU, but uh, uh, the bigger issue here is with China. So I think that's going to become uh, more important going down the road mm-hmm. than our relationship with the Celeste, what is your take on this? Well, I'll just start with the the rhetoric of trade war. And we think it's just a harmful phrase to use because basically it's real wars are scary. They're dangerous things. They're obviously things we want to avoid. And using the rhetoric of trade war, we think sort of delegitimizes the fact that trade enforcement is okay. It's a legitimate tool of trade. It's existed for hundreds of years. Now, it has to be used smartly. We believe that it should be used in a targeted way against the problem and not applied indiscriminately to allies. But if we just tone down the rhetoric and talk about what the U.S. needs to do in terms of trade, trade enforcement is one thing. It's a good start, but it's really a tiny slice of the pie in terms of everything that's wrong with U.S. trade policy. So, we can get into the problems of China or get into, you know, the beneficial effects of, of toning down that rhetoric with Europe, which we, we think is a good thing. But let's watch out if, if this is just a restart of the TTIP. Um, and there's lots of questions, but we want to start with the premise that it is legitimate to enforce trade laws and tariffs are one tool to do that. I'd just like to backtrack a bit about what Trump has promised during his campaign and Here is a clip of Trump uh, at his campaign speech in Pennsylvania back in June 2016. Our politicians have aggressively pursued a policy of globalization, moving our jobs, our wealth, and our factories to Mexico and overseas. 
When subsidized foreign steel is dumped into our markets, threatening our factories, the politicians have proven, folks, have proven they do nothing. So, Celeste, like, what is your take on that? What has Trump accomplished as president? Well, I think in 2016, our members were looking for someone to shake up the status quo and to, you know, address some longstanding problems the U.S. has had on trade. And some of the members found that the candidate of Donald Trump was sort of making the right noises, talking the right things about trade, and voted for him. I think now we're into 2018, and looking back, a lot of the promises that were made have been broken or they remain unfulfilled. And I think we have to look at the bigger picture in terms of, again, there's much more to trade than just tariffs. Tariffs are a good start, but they have to be applied you know, thoughtfully, and and we have problems with the application of the 232 tariffs, that's the steel and aluminum tariffs, against our good friend and ally Canada, for example. But we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with the NAFTA renegotiation. And we think there's a lot more that needs to be done. The WTO has problems that should be addressed. Other trade agreements have problems that should be addressed. We need strong mm-hmm. industrial policy, those kinds of things. And we're still waiting on those. Mm-hmm. And Bill, from the clip that we just played, how has Trump's campaign promises manifested itself um, in this day and age? Well, first of all, from the clip you played, I, I have to say that uh, on the statement uh, the financial elite, I think he was at the time he made that statement in June 28th, before he got the nomination, he was one. He was a one of the financial elite then, and I think he remains a financial elite today. He certainly hasn't changed. He's net worth at least uh, by Forbes magazine. He's at 3.1 billion dollars. Of course, he escalates that sometimes to 10 billion. He's one of the richest um, presidents we've ever had, bar none. And I understand he's maybe the 766 richest man in the world. So his and also, his real estate empire is large in scale and global in scope with properties in 10 countries. So I find his uh, statement on the face of it to be highly hypocritical. And more importantly, the statement, amazing conclusion he reaches that politicians who get elected by their constituents, that his constituents actually, actually set those constituents actually set out to, quote, aggressively pursue moving their constituent jobs and wealth overseas is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. And speaking of um, constituents, um, the issue of tariffs is closely um, related to the issue of jobs and wages. And what have you seen in recent months um, of the impacts of these tariffs on jobs and wages, Bill? From my perspective, uh, you're starting, you can see individual cases out there developing. um, The individual, the market, the uh, business in Missouri that makes, uh, uh, I believe it is nails, that they've had to lay off 50% of their workers. You've heard about the Harley-Davidson movement to have to lay off uh, and close down some businesses. It's it's been marginal so far, but uh, we haven't seen the real impact of the uh, 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 retaliatory tariffs and uh, that are coming. Mm Mm-hmm. I just don't think that uh, uh, the job impact is coming that close to, as I say, Moody Analytics has estimated as many as 4 million if all those things were actually carried through. So 
I think we've yet to see the real impact uh, of uh, these tariffs. Yeah, Dave, I think working people have a little bit different perspective to add on that question. So I think for one thing, we know that more than 6,500 jobs have been added in steel and aluminum as a result of the 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum. And those are in states really across the country from Florida, Kentucky, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, really a whole host of states. But I think, and the numbers are actually showing that downstream employment, so in industries that use steel and aluminum, employment is staying high and even growing in some areas. So there are some positive things. But again, I think the place that I would agree with Bill is that tariffs are not a holistic you know, trade and economic development policy. And that's really where I think this president has let down working people because we don't see a broad plan for really growing jobs and growing wages. And in fact, we've seen some attacks on working people and their rights, whether it's workplace safety or whether it's decreasing the right to organize and join unions in the federal sector, all of those things would have a tendency to drive down wages and working conditions instead of lifting them up. Yes, and the issue of tariffs is also related to the issue of supply chains. And we have seen various companies trying to move their productions um, overseas, from um, Harley-Davidson to foreign direct investment companies like Toyota. What is your response to these companies trying to move their productions overseas, Bill? Well, I think they're businessmen and women, and they uh, they are going to try to protect their bottom line as best they can. And I think that uh, this is just natural business. They're trying. They are trying to maintain their uh, return on their investment. So I'm not surprised. This is this. They are good uh, business people who understand uh, how markets work, and they are going to go where they have to go to make sure that they maintain that bottom line. I think they we are. We have to realize we're not dealing with the 1930s. Uh, we are we are in the 21st century. We we are dealing with a global economy, and we can't turn that back. And uh, these kinds of tariffs that the president are proposing, with the retaliatory present tariffs, um, whether I I agree with Celeste, whether I want to call it a trade war or not, it certainly is having a disruptive effect on business, planning, and going forward. Uh, So uh, it's disrupting those supply chains that you talked about. And what worries me more than the immediate impact of these uh, uh, tariffs and retaliatory tariffs that we're we're seeing is the long-term effect it will have on business and opportunities. I, I, uh, I I, I, I come from a a farm family in Indiana. We still have the farm in the in the family. Mm. Uh, our soybean prices have dropped nearly 20 percent in just the last uh, month and a half. Uh, uh, now, I know the president is trying to soften that by giving, uh, going to the Commodity Credit Corporation and and providing payments up to 12 billion dollars out there, mm. which would be welfare payments, from my perspective. It's an insult in many ways to to the farmers that I know. They don't want to hand out. They want to compete in trade. But when you start this this type of activity, uh, we will lose market shares to Brazilians and others. And so I think the long-term effect of this, whether we 
finally negotiate something we're going to be living with for quite some time. And do you think that those $12 billion in aid would actually help farmers? Well, first of all, as I say, I, uh, the farmers that I know on my family farm, we would rather not have those kind of dough, uh, what I would call doles, welfare payments. Uh, that's not that's not the ag people I know, the farmers I know. Will they take it if it's given to If they have an opportunity, yes. But um, quite frankly, uh, $12 billion even that comes doesn't come close to the damage it's done. He's in the area of soybeans alone. The estimates are well over that the impact of this retaliatory tariffs and the cutback and the 20% reduction in prices could be as much as 16 billion dollars. And, and remember, the 12 the 12 billion dollars that the president's talking about is not just for soybeans. It's for sorghum, corn, uh, some of the uh, some of the other. Uh, commodities out there that are impacted by this. So yes, um, it'll, it'll have some impact uh, to soften the blow, but uh, it's not it's not really going to have the major impact uh, that would that the actual tariffs themselves are having, the retaliatory tariffs are having. Yeah, and just to give our listeners some background, the Chinese retaliated against U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, and those tariffs have included the first wave of $34 billion on Chinese goods and the U.S. is also slated to impose $200 billion of tariffs on Chinese goods. And their um, retaliation has mostly been on agricultural products such as soybeans and corn. So, Celeste, what does this mean for workers? Yeah, great question. So, again, I think let's start by putting this in perspective. Even if the U.S. put a 10% tariff on every single import coming in from China as the president has threatened, that still amounts to two one thousandth of the U.S. economy. So a lot of the things that the pain that folks are talking about at this point is still speculative. However, it's real. And what we want is economic and trade policy that actually builds up small businesses, working people, farmers, all those folks. And and so when we talk about sort of 12 billion in aid uh, for the farm sector, if that's needed, we should do it. And I would want to contrast that with the last trade adjustment assistance bill, which is designed to help workers who have been hurt by bad trade policy and lose their jobs. And the funding for that was $450 million per year. So there's a real difference. And, and you mentioned the, the nail factory that has announced layoffs. And I've probably read at least a dozen stories about that one nail factory and the layoffs. And I'm wondering, you know, where was all the the news media coverage of the more than 50,000 factories that we've lost since the year 2000. So we have to put this in perspective. And, and as I've said, it is important to defend U.S. national security interests in steel and aluminum against the overcapacity that China is doing. China is not trading in the so-called free market as world demand for steel went down during the great crisis of 2008-2009, Chinese capacity to produce steel actually increased. What we've seen in the aluminum sector is more than half of aluminum workers using their job losing their jobs just between 2013 and 2016. So it is a crisis and it's important to address. And the 301 tariffs are all about China's cheating on intellectual property. So whether it's coercing investment so that they can get a hold of, uh, you know, 
patents and manufacturing processes, or whether it's counterfeit goods or unlicensed software. China has a variety of tools that it has been using to gain in trade at the cost of U.S. jobs and wages. So these are important, but they're not a full answer. When you started the question, you were talking about outsourcing and what else can the U.S. do to try to stem outsourcing, right? It's going to happen. We're in a globalized economy, but how can we do it in a way that lifts workers and lifts wages and helps families prosper? And we can do that by looking at additional things like stopping the special rights and privileges for corporations in trade deals known as investor-to-state dispute settlement. We can do it by really enforcing the labor and environmental regulations so that when U.S. companies choose to outsource, they don't gain an advantage by exploiting human beings or abusing the environment. There are ways to create a level playing field that are about much more than tariffs. And by the way, if the tariffs work, they're on for a short time and then they're lifted. And that would be our goal. They should not be a permanent tool of trade policy. Yes, and, uh, speaking about that, so the $12 billion in aid was basically brought up because of the initial tariffs. And some people have argued that if we had not imposed these, these tariffs in the first place, then we would not have to aid those farmers with the $12 billion in aid. So what, like, what are your thoughts on that, Bill and Celeste? So I'll start, if that's okay, Bill. I just think, sure. you know, in the trade world, you've got they the aid is needed, and folks are arguing it's needed because of the retaliatory tariffs. Retaliatory tariffs could have probably been predicted. It's a little bit of how countries engage in this trade game. And I think what could have been a better way of imposing the 232 and the 301 tariffs by the United States would have been to round up support from allies beforehand, so to work with Canada, with Japan, with the EU, because we're all facing similar problems with steel overcapacity and with intellectual property theft, and to do it together. And then when you have a united front, you're more able to withstand retaliation from China, and frankly, then you're not having retaliation as between the U.S. and Canada. So there would be a more effective way to do it, but the point is, again, even when it's sort of the game of chicken, you raise your tariffs, I'll raise mine. The point is to eventually get the parties to the table. You know, tariffs are designed to hurt a little bit so that you induce changes in behavior. And if the parties can talk and meet and say, let's address the underlying frictions, then the tariffs can go away. And that's what we think would be an effective solution here. And you said just now that it would be great if com- if countries could team up together to fight against a single cause. And in this case, it's Chinese um, intellectual property theft. Absolutely. And I and I agree with Celeste on this. This uh, I'm not opposed to... Uh, the tariffs where where there is unfair trade practices and clearly the Chinese have been involved in this and steel and aluminum tariffs are have a justification for it. Um, and I, but I do think that the way this is handled by the administration is almost like a bull in a China shop has created this very much disruption, hurting individuals, families, and, and in my case, uh, the ag sector, which they were not part of the problem to begin with. Uh, so I, th- I think Celeste is absolutely correct that bringing people to the table, sitting down and talking through, using the existing institutions out there, which I also am concerned about that the president wants to destroy some of these institutions, 
including the World Trade Organization. It may not be the most efficient, but it is a it is the opportunity we have to talk through these issues and work them out in a way that does not that is done in a, in a fair way. It sounds to me a little bit like uh, what came out of yesterday's discussion between the president of the EU and, and President Trump was along those lines. Let's talk. Let's work this thing out. Let's not be disruptive to the American public or to the European consumers and work these things through in a fair and orderly manner. That's not what I see happening under this administration. And do you see tariffs as a long-term strategy? You know, maybe the president has a plan here. Uh, maybe this is all puff and puff to get people to the table. Um, in the process of doing that, I hear him tell, and we'll be telling uh, producers in the Midwest today to be patient. The unfortunate situation is that this, as I said earlier, creates uncertainty and markets um, change. And we, be, if we have any sense of losing our credibility in the world market, we lose our we lose a share of those markets going forward into the future, and we, it's very hard to get them back. And uh, I know that particularly in the agriculture sector. So um, it, it may be a strategy that brings everybody to the table at some point, uh, but uh, in the process, uh, there will be, yes, I agree with Celeste, there will be some people that will benefit from these in the short term. In the long term, though, I believe the overall impact on the economy and jobs overall will be negative. And Celeste, will this be a long-term strategy for um, workers as well? Well, we hope it won't be a long-term strategy. We hope that the tariffs are effective at addressing the problems, so overcapacity in steel and aluminum and the intellectual property theft by China, and that they can be lifted. And like we said, that you know we're hearing more studies announced sort of by the day, whether it's a 232 investigation on uranium or automobiles or whatever it is, we're for the U.S. using its whole panoply of trade enforcement and at least looking and examining the problems. But in the end, tariffs cannot be the only tool. We have to look at some of these other underlying issues that create a level playing field. And that has to be the bigger strategy. It's got to be setting additional rules to create that level playing field and setting up incentives so that you don't have to wait 20 years to act and then put on a, a bunch of tariffs that sort of, you know, get people talking with this rhetoric and try to say, wait a minute, I'm used to 20 years of non-enforcement. Now I'm concerned about what happens if there is enforcement. I think we need a, a better system. And Bill mentioned the WTO. It's a it's a vehicle. Unfortunately, it currently doesn't have rules about overcapacity or currency misalignment and manipulation or very effective rules on intellectual property. So beefing up the WTO could be good. And at the same time, we could also get the WTO to stop doing some things that it has done in terms of overreach, like getting it zeroing, which is a method the U.S. uses when it's calculating dumping subsidies and stopping the WTO from getting involved in how we label our beef and pork. I think there's a lot of things that the WTO could do better and ways it could be cut back. So how are Republicans constructing their economic messages on the campaign trail so far when it comes to trade? This is evolving. So I think some came out, when you're looking at the, the tariffs in particular, some came out immediately against the tariffs and said, this is just another tax increase on consumers. And then what they're finding out is that it's not 
really having that effect, sort of that the scare tactics of rampant inflation are not happening. And some of them are really softening and saying, let's look at whether these are well implemented, well strategized, something like that. But the Republicans are certainly not seeing the sort of gratefulness from voters that they expected from the tax bill. And that's because it primarily didn't go to working and middle class families. And so they're going to have to come up with something if they want the votes of people who work for a living, something that is tangible. And that is more than just talking about consumer price cuts, but what are they doing to really raise wages? And that's really important. And so I think a lot of working people are looking for that, not just rhetoric about stopping outsourcing, but what are you doing to boost new jobs, to invest in new jobs, and to invest in our ability to to raise our families so and care for our for families? Actions. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Bill, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I agree with Celeste. It, it will it will depend, and uh, and there are many other issues here. If if the way if my individual wage is going up, or if if I don't see the tax cuts that I was promised to offset the uh, impact of maybe some increasing prices associated with the tariffed items and the retaliatory tariffs, then uh, that's going to uh, that's going to really have an impact on my decision, and I'm going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long I can be, quote, patient and waiting. Uh, I was promised uh, uh, wage increases. I was promised in, that America would be great again. I don't know how long I can wait uh, to see these policies impact the way that will influence my final vote. But uh, uh, it will it will take some time here before we see the, the full impact of these tariffs unless they do back off. I think I understand, as, as Celeste understands also, I think, that uh, the Republicans, and I work for Republicans, are looking at this as uh, trying to focus on the tax cuts as having beneficial effects to them. Uh, but if these tariffs are offsetting that, this is going to be a no-win game for Republicans going into the fall. Yes, and we're still about four months away from the elections, and a lot of things might change um, in between. So my final question for you two is, do you have any clo- um, like closing thoughts on how this trade spat is going to move forward? Uh- I would start off by saying I agree with uh, Bill that the voters, no matter which party they might lean to, aren't going to have patience forever. And so they are looking for quick fulfillment of promises. And I'm not sure what what exactly the voters will find by November. But I think it's it's really important to, you know, focus again on the fact that Working people, and which includes a wide swath of swing voters, you know, Democrats and Republicans, they are looking for action that does positive things for their families, makes it easier for them to afford the health care, the housing, the education that they need. And they're going to be looking for actions to do that and candidates who say, I am standing with you. So whether that means being tough on China, whether that means supporting their right to organize in the workplace, many other things. I think voters are going to be looking for that. And for us, when we talk about trade, I think the most important thing to remember is that, you know, the tariffs are important, but they're a small slice. And we should get to greater discussion of some other ways that we can reform trade to help address this outsourcing issue. 
So there's a broader range of issues that might influence other parts of the elections, I guess. I think that's right. A lot of other issues, uh, as Celeste has mentioned, health care, education, wage growth, uh, Supreme Court nominee. Uh, there are a number of other factors that will be on the, end of, uh, on the voters' mind going into the fall. I think the most important thing for the president is to get, it, quite frankly, from my perspective, is to get this issue of the, of the uh, we, won't, we want to be careful about calling it a trade war, but to get this off the, off the uh, uh, radar as quickly as possible, because I think the longer this stretches out, with the, the more difficult it's going to be going. And it will, maybe it's not the top of the issue not right now, but the longer this stretches out, the more it'll start moving up that agenda item, mm-hmm. become more of a factor in this fall's election. Well, Celeste and Bill, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for having us.